Welcome to NextWorks Innovation Talks. Let our podcast inspire you with inside stories and conversations about innovation. Welcome to the NextWorks Innovation Talks. I'm your host, Laurence van Ilgen, and today I'm very excited to be able to introduce John Hagel. John has spent over 40 years in Silicon Valley and has experience as a management consultant, an entrepreneur, speaker, and author. He is the leader of the Center for the Edge at Deloitte. He occupies leadership roles at the World Economic Forum and the Santa Fe Institute, and he serves on the faculty of Singularity University. So welcome, John. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, for sure. One of the things I like about you is that you are so good at asking fundamental questions. So maybe we can start with this one related to the future of work. So what should work be and what should companies do to get there? Yes, I think that, you know, everybody is talking about the future of work, but very few people are actually asking the most basic question, which is what should the work be? Mm -hmm. uh, our view is that there is going to be a fundamental shift in the nature of work. If I'm going to generalize, but at a high level, I would say that most work today, certainly in most large institutions, mm -hmm. are tightly specified tasks uh, that are highly standardized and tightly integrated. And that's what work is today for most people. Our belief is actually that work increasingly can be done by machines and should be done by machines. It's not very fulfilling work for human beings. And the opportunity is to take the freed capacity as we free up time for people that have been consumed with the routine tasks to redefine the work for them at a fundamental level to say, the work is really to address unseen problems and opportunities to create more value. And the challenge is, again, we were so consumed with the routine tasks, we didn't even have time to see the problems and opportunities, much less address them. And so I think that that can provide a powerful engine for value creation throughout the institution. I'm not just talking about work in research labs or innovation centers. I'm talking about work throughout the organization. Everybody were focused on addressing unseen problems and opportunities mm -hmm. to create more value. Imagine what we could accomplish. So can I take it that you're not a big fan of innovation labs that are separate from the rest of the company, that you see this more as something that is company-wide or, or not? Yeah, I mean, I, certainly there may be still a role for innovation labs, but I worry that for most companies, it's creating a silo. Yes, we need innovation, so let's do it over here in this innovation lab. Everybody else, just stay with your routine tasks. Don't be creative, don't uh, innovate. And so, again, if you take seriously this notion of redefining work, everybody in the organization needs to become an innovator because they're addressing unseen problems and opportunities. So <laughs> that's innovation. So you talked already a bit about this, of course, but, but can we talk about your concept of the big shift? Because you've been telling companies for many years now that they need to shift from the scalable efficiency model to scalable learning. So can you explain how that works? And if this shift has become even more relevant during these pandemic times, Yeah, I think uh, it's been a core theme of our research center for the edge for over a decade, but it's the notion that there are long-term forces that are reshaping the global economy 
and uh, society and that it's going to require fundamental transformation of the institutions that we have. Um, mm-hmm. There are many forces at work, certainly one key one, since I'm from Silicon Valley, is mm-hmm. digital technology, which continues to exponentially improve in terms of its performance relative to price. But there are a whole lot of other forces that are kind of interrelated. I mean, one force that we see in this big shift is the increasing power and expectations of customers. We as customers, you know, for over a century, there was what I call the industrial bargain, which is basically, if you want affordable products and services, we can deliver those to you. But they have to be standardized mass market products. That's the only way we can make them affordable to you. Our view is, as customers now, increasingly, we're not willing to accept that bargain anymore. We want products and services that are tailored to our specific needs and that are going to evolve with our needs as our needs evolve. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different challenge for companies that have been organized, again, around this scalable efficiency model uh, where everything is standardized. And so the variety of these forces come together and create a fundamental change. And I like to talk about the paradox of the big shift, which is at one level, if you look at how these forces are playing out, they're creating exponentially expanding opportunity. Mm -hmm. We can create much more value with far less resource, far more quickly than would have ever been imaginable 10 or 20 years ago exponentially expanding opportunity. At the same time, these same forces are creating mounting performance pressure on all of us as individuals and as institutions. And it takes many different forms, but we're seeing intensified competition, barriers to entry, barriers to movement going down, seeing accelerating pace of change. We're seeing extreme events like the current pandemic come in out of nowhere. So that's a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. But they're both happening at the same time, mounting pressure and exponentially expanding opportunity. And our belief is the way you move from the mounting pressure to the expanding opportunity is to rethink your institutions at a fundamental level. And I'm not just talking about companies. I think governments, NGOs, schools are all built around this model of scalable efficiency. The key is to become more and more efficient at scale and not to argue that for a century, huge institutions created globally uh, around this model and a lot of value uh, generated. The challenge is that in a more rapidly changing world with a lot of more uncertainty, the approach that we've taken to scalable efficiency is actually becoming less and less efficient. And the need is to move to a different institutional model We call it scalable learning, but it's the notion that the institutions that are going to thrive in the future are institutions that are driven to learn faster. I should say by learning, I'm not talking about training programs. I'm talking about learning through action by addressing unseen problems and opportunities to create more value. Mm -hmm. And how can we learn faster by doing that throughout the organization? So what are all the concrete steps that companies will need to make to move from scalable efficiency to scalable learning? And which are the skills and the talents that they will need to nurture for that? 
Well, I, it's a huge transformation. I will say too that I, I cringe. I, virtually every institution I know has what they call a digital transformation program. <laughs> and yet when I really press them on what that is, what they're trying to do, it's basically taking digital technology to do what they've always done faster mm-hmm. and cheaper. It's scalable efficiency. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. transformation. I mean, yes, they're trying to get improvement in performance, but it's not transformation. And if you're serious about transformation, I use the metaphor of the caterpillar to the butterfly. The result has to be unrecognizable relative to where it began. And in that context, I've been involved in transformation efforts for many years. And um, over the time, the experience that I've had, I've basically developed an enormous respect for the immune system and the antibodies that exist in virtually every large institution Hmm. that will mobilize at the slightest indication of a change effort to crush it and hold on to what we already are doing and have. And uh, in that context, so in terms of how do you move from scalable efficiency to scalable learning, first of all, you have to respect the immune system, realize that it's there. And in that context, our view is large top-down big bang initiatives to transform everybody in the organization are unlikely to succeed. They actually have a very high failure rate if you look at the academic studies Mm -hmm. that have been done. Our view is the best way to drive transformation is through scaling an edge. And what we mean by that is finding a part of the institution today that's relatively small and not a significant part of the activity But if you understand the forces, the exponential forces that are driving change, that edge has the potential to scale to the point where it will become the new core of your company or institution, not just the new diversification or growth initiative. It will become the new core. Use that effort to drive the transformation as you scale the edge. And when it becomes the core, you've transformed the institution itself by scaling the edge. So can you give examples of companies that really excel at this scalable learning and and scaling the edge? There are actually very few companies that, uh, well, I I can't identify any large institution that I would say has mastered scalable learning. Uh, We've been looking for them, and if you know of any, please let us know. But um, there are examples of companies that have done this in certain parts of their organization or helped improve learning on some dimensions, but not all. And I think, you know, one of the frustrations I have based here in Silicon Valley is, you know, some of the most entrepreneurial and successful companies in Silicon Valley really were driven by this notion of scalable learning in their early days. But as they started to get bigger, Sooner or later, the investors come in and say, you need adult supervision. Hmm. And what they mean by that is we need to bring in experienced executives who can help you build a scalable efficiency organization. <laughs> and in the process, they crush the innovation and learning that was driving their initial success. So, but... You talked about this, the immune system of the company and the fact that it's really difficult for large companies to go into scalable learning, even if they maybe started out that way. But what would need to change for this to work? 
Some people say you just need to create pockets of innovation that are at a distance that is far enough from the immune system that they can do what they want, but you seem not to be such a fan of that. So how would you see it then? No, again, I think the key is uh, the notion of committing to an edge. Mm -hmm. It's not just an experiment, not just something on the side, but you're committed to scaling that to become the new core of your business, Mm -hmm. the new core of your company. Again, a growth initiative or diversification, it will be the new core. And in the course of building that edge, there are a whole series of initiatives Mm -hmm. A couple of things that we've been exploring. One is the notion of taking design thinking and design methodologies, which we have historically used to redesign our products and services for customers. We've redesigned the customer experience. Our focus is on taking design thinking and applying it to ourselves and saying, if our goal is to accelerate learning and performance improvement, How would we redesign our work environments to do that, to accomplish that? And systematically, and not just physical environments, you know, the layout of the offices and desks, it's the virtual environment, the IT platforms and tools that workers interact with, it's the management systems, it's the entire worker experience. How would we redesign that to accelerate learning and performance improvement? And we came up with nine design principles that can help companies to create work environments that will accelerate learning. And all of this is based on case studies. So we actually, we went out when we embarked on this research to see, could we find any company that had systematically redesigned work environments to accelerate learning? No, (laughs) couldn't find any. Mm -hmm. Um, What we could find were companies that had taken a, a specific aspect of the work environment and redesigned it and gotten very significant benefits and results from it in terms of learning. So it gave us confidence that, you know, if you can get impact with slices of the work environment, what if you took the entire work environment and redesigned it? It gave even more impact. But so work environment redesign, one specific set of actions you can take to accelerate learning and make this transition to scalable learning. Another one is what we call business practice redesign. And it's the notion that, you know, for decades now in the business world, we've had a whole movement around what's known as business process reengineering. Mm-hmm. So how can we design more and more efficient processes and standardized processes to become more efficient? Our belief is actually those kinds of processes are becoming more and more prisons because they confine and constrain the workers in terms of what they can do. And the opportunity is to focus On work groups, our belief is if you're serious about learning, you need to start by organizing work groups, not just individual workers, but workers coming together to help each other to learn faster. And then cultivating a set of practices within the work groups that can help them to learn faster. And again, we came up with a series of practices from our case studies. Again, we couldn't find any company that had done all of this, but specific examples of companies that work groups within companies that had started to embrace some of these practices and the results that they achieved. Redesigning work environment, redesigning the practices within work groups, we believe can be powerful ways to start to drive this transformation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you talked about work groups to learn faster, and I know that you're a big believer in collaboration and in networks. 
How do you think that the lockdown and social distancing will have impacted those or not? You know, it's a mixed result. I think at one level, it certainly inhibited our ability to come together in the same place at the same time. On the other side, it's expanded our ability to connect with others that previously we didn't connect with because they weren't in the same place at the same time. Mm -hmm. So from a network viewpoint, I think it's expanding our horizons, our view of the range of people we can connect with. But I believe that increasingly, in terms of the work groups as the core unit to drive the learning, there is going to be a strong desire and need to come together in physical space, maybe not every day, you know, eight hours a day, but frequently to be able to really build much deeper trust-based relationships with each other. Mm-hmm. I'll just offer as an aside, it's a completely <laughs> distant from business, but uh, we've spent a lot of time for a variety of reasons studying online war games mm-hmm. like World of Warcraft. Mm-hmm. And in those games, even though people usually start out as individuals playing in the game, they very quickly start to assemble into small groups where they really are, are working together to achieve that next level of performance. Mm-hmm. And in, in many of these games, the groups that start to form are very distributed. They're from all, different countries all over the world. But, you know, it's very interesting, the experience of those groups over time they have an increasing desire to meet in physical space. Mm-hmm. They organize meetings where they come together from all over the world just so they can have a deeper sense of the other participants in the group. So mm-hmm. I think over time, we're going to see the combination, you know, the work groups that are really very actively collaborating on a daily basis and and least regularly meeting in physical space, mm-hmm. but then uh, connecting those work groups through networks where the work groups could be anywhere in the world, yet they're still going to be connected through the network. So you tell companies that they need a zoom in and zoom out strategy. So in other words, that they need to zoom out for five to 10 years to find a strategic direction and then zoom back in and find those two to three manageable steps that they can make in the next six to 12 months to bring them closer to the zoom out strategy. So can you maybe give an example of a company that's great in this approach? Yeah, so I think, uh, first of all, just to clarify, the zoom out is not five to 10 years. It's oh, sorry. 10, 10 to 20 years, longer term zoom out. And, and part of it is to challenge the uh, core assumptions about the company and the business, because if you take just a five-year perspective, you can pretty much convince yourself you're going to be the same company five years from now as you are today with some minor improvements or enhancements. But If you really force yourself to zoom out 10 to 20 years and you understand exponential change and you still believe you're going to be the same company 10 to 20 years from now that you are today, you need to really go back and challenge yourself. And it forces leaders out of their comfort zone to really anticipate what they could become, need to become to be successful. I would say the the approach, the zoom out, zoom in approach was inspired by my uh, experience working with uh, some of the most successful tech companies in Silicon Valley. Most of them, uh, well, they're generally not public about their zoom out, zoom in strategies, so it's hard to share them. Mm -hmm. But I think 
there's one company that's been written about where the zoom out, zoom in approach was reported on, and it's Microsoft in the early days, very early days. This was back in the 1970s when Bill Gates was first bringing the Microsoft group together. And um, he had a zoom out, zoom in approach. And the zoom out approach could be summarized in two sentences. It was basically the computing industry is moving from centralized mainframes to the desktop. And then if you want to be a leader in the computer industry, you need to be a leader on the desktop. You know, I think a number of things. One is, you know, looking back, we said, well, of course, what's, <laughs> you know, but in the 1970s, when he, he framed this zoom out view, it was hugely controversial. It was challenging the basic assumptions of all the leaders in the computer industry. But it, I also like it because it highlights many people when I talk about zoom out, think I'm talking about having a detailed blueprint mm-hmm. of what the future industry is going to look like. No, it's not. You, you can't do that in an uncertain world. But you can focus on some basic elements in the future that are reasonably predictable that can provide focus for your near-term action. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think that zoom out view of Bill Gates did was it focused them, okay, what do we need to do to become a leader on the desktop? What are the things in the next six to 12 months that we could do that would accelerate our movement in that direction? And so I think it helps to provide focus because one of the big challenges I hear from executives of large companies uh, everywhere is we've got so many initiatives, but nothing's achieving impact because we're spread way too thin. We don't have enough focus on anything. And the zoom out power of the zoom out, zoom in is that it provides that focus for the short term. Because I think most companies, the response to increasing change and uncertainty is to adopt what I would describe as a reactive strategy. It's just sense and respond as quickly as you can, whatever's going on, and that's the key to success. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's the key to failure. Because if you're just sensing and responding to everything that's going on, you're going to spread yourself way too thin. There's so many things going on. You need to have some focus. You need to have a sense of what's really important. Uh, and by the way, with the the Bill Gates uh, story, the Microsoft story, that zoom out view was a 20-year view of the computer industry back in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. That served Microsoft extremely well for 20 years. It wasn't a five-year perspective. Mm-hmm. But you talk about the fact that reactive strategy is not the best approach, of course, which which I understand. But for Black Swan events like today's pandemic, is it not only possible to have a reactive strategy because we, we did not see this coming or, or how do you see this? No, I, I think, again, it, it's more of a balance in the sense of, yes, there's an uncertainty and there are these extreme events that can come in out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And so part of the notion of scalable learning is the ability to quickly see things coming and quickly move to address them in ways that can continue to create value. It's a much more flexible approach to the world. You know, again, I think one of the challenges that I hear today in the context of the pandemic is the notion of resilience. We need to become more resilient. And when I press on what they mean by resilience, more often than not, the answer I get back is, oh, it's the ability to bounce back, Mm -hmm. to go back to where we were. No, why would you ever want to go back to where you were? 
<laughs> you want to learn and grow from the experience and become better. <laughs> That's not in the mindset. Again, in the scalable efficiency world, it's just get back to what we were doing. This is a distraction versus this is an opportunity to learn and to get even stronger and better over time. Yeah, sure, because it's not as if we were doing so great like for the environment before the pandemic. So there's a lot of things that we can learn from it. Yeah, and I would say too that leaving aside the environment, which is certainly mm -hmm. a huge issue, even if you take the narrow view of economic profit, you know, one of the analyses we did as part of the big shift uh, was we looked at all public companies in the United States from 1965 until today. And we said, how have they done with all this amazing technology that's now available? And we took as our measure of performance return on assets, a financial metric that's publicly reported. And it turns out from 1965 until today, for all public companies in the U.S., return on assets has basically collapsed. It's gone down by 75%. And it's been a long, sustained erosion. There are waves that correspond to the short-term economic cycles and events, but long-term trend, very clear. And, you know, our view is if you want a quantified data-driven indicator of mounting performance pressure, that's a pretty good indicator. And it's an indicator that we are becoming less and less effective in responding to this pressure. Scalable efficiency model is not the model that is going to get us through this. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies might find it really difficult to zoom out. So maybe they would just make, I don't know, linear assumptions or, or just think outside of their own industry instead of thinking uh, into other industries because the industry lines are blurring. So what should companies think about when they zoom out? There are a number of things. I think your point about avoiding the traditional industry silos is important. You know, the first question that I typically ask in the zoom out exercise is, who will your customers be 10 to 20 years from now? Are they actually going to be the same customers you have today? In many cases, no, they will be quite different. Mm -hmm. And what will be their unmet needs 10 to 20 years from now versus what they're asking for or looking for today? And that can help to pull people out to look at the customers versus just staying focused on themselves and their competitors and taking a more inward-looking view. But then I think also one of the things that I have participated in with some companies is what I call learning journeys, where we take the entire leadership team of a company to a place where there's a significant amount of innovation going on today. Silicon Valley is certainly one example. Uh, Shenzhen, China... Tel Aviv, Israel, there, there are these clusters of innovation, taking the leadership team out to those places, not having somebody come in and give a talk in their boardroom, but taking them out to actually see these companies and see things happening today, it can be eye-opening and can really get them to, again, be more open to challenging their beliefs about their industry or their company. And then I think the other piece is, is bringing in what I call provocateurs to these sessions where you're trying to zoom out people who are not part of the company not part of the industry but who have a sense of some of the changes that are going on in the world and can be there to challenge the executives when they start to fall back into their more comfortable assumptions about who they are and what they're doing 
The other piece that helps is given that the exercise is to anticipate the future and commit to a, a specific future that you're going to drive towards, it focuses the leadership on what are the trends that are reasonably predictable. There's a huge amount of uncertainty in the world, and no trend is entirely predictable, but what's more predictable than others? And, you know, I go back to the Microsoft example. He focused on two trends to develop his zoom out view. One was the exponential improvement in performance of digital technology over time. He figured that's pretty predictable. It was early days, but he saw the innovation that was going on and that that would be continuing. And then the other trend he saw was he was, again, taking more of a customer focus, a user focus, and he was finding that the employees of large companies were getting more and more frustrated because they had to wait in line to get access to the mainframes and, you know, fill out all kinds of bureaucratic forms and take a long time. (laughs) They're frustrated and their frustration is just going to grow. So there's an unmet need here. If we could provide them with something on their desktop that would be immediately available and that they could tailor to their specific needs, that would be huge. He said, that's pretty predictable. That's probably not going to go away. (laughs) Um, And so taking those two trends, the technology trend and this customer need trend, helped him to frame, again, a very high-level view of the future, but that was pretty accurate. I think that you have seen and experienced so much change over the past years. And I know that you are such an innate, curious person. So I would really like to ask you this. What are you seeing about what's coming next that we are missing? (laughs) Oh, boy. I think that there's so much going on and there are so many things. And some people have seen them, but most have not. You know, I, I think that the one thing that's getting more and more of my attention and focus is looking at the emotional side of everything. In business, we've been taught not to focus on emotion. It's all about numbers and charts and graphs and data. And, you know, I've come to believe that actually the changes that are playing out have a significant impact on our emotions. And the impact I'm seeing uh, is this growing sense of fear, emotion of fear, because of the mounting pressure on individuals and on institutions. And so I don't think, you know, again, many people are seeing the fear, but not enough are really focused on what's driving the fear. And more importantly, what can we do to overcome the fear? Mm-hmm. I think that, unfortunately, one response in our society today is to play to the fear. I, I challenge people, when was the last time you heard a good news report on, on a newscast? <laughs> it's all about the latest crisis, the latest tragedy that's occurred. They're feeding the fear. What we're not seeing is the growth of that fear and the things that are reinforcing the fear. Mm-hmm. But then, more importantly, What do we need to do to move from fear to what I describe as hope and excitement that can motivate us to overcome the fear? I don't think the fear is ever going to go away. I I think there are reasons to be afraid if you're in a world of mounting pressure. Yeah, it's a natural human reaction to be afraid, but what emotions can you cultivate that will help you to move forward despite that fear and actually harness the opportunities that are available? Mm -hmm. And that's... I think what's missing is more the emotional side of how do we shift people in that direction. Mm -hmm. And how do you see that we could help solve that fear, maybe for society as a whole, but also for employees? 
how can companies help release some of that pressure and that fear for the individual employee? Because I agree that that's a really important one. There are many elements, but you know, one thing that I've become more and more intrigued with is the notion of what I call opportunity-based narratives. Mm-hmm. You know, I hesitate to use the word because most people think of narratives and stories and they mean the same thing. I make a big distinction. For me, stories are self-contained. They have a beginning, a middle, and an ending to them. And stories are about the storyteller or they're about some other people. They're not about you and the audience. Just listen and imagine what you could have done, but it's not about you. For me, the contrast is a narrative, the way I define it. It's open-ended. There is no resolution yet. There's some kind of big opportunity or threat out in the future, not clear whether it's going to be achieved or not. And the resolution of the narrative hinges on you. Your choices, your actions are going to help resolve this narrative. Mm -hmm. What's it going to be? So it's a call to action. And I think in the context, again, of fear and moving people out of fear, unfortunately, I think the reaction of many executives in times of great change is they adopt what I call the burning platform narrative, which is if we don't transform, we're going to die. Mm -hmm. Well, that plays to fear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The contrast is what I call an opportunity-based narrative, which is to frame what amazing things could we accomplish if we drove this transformation? How much more value could we create together? That's inspiring. Mm -hmm. And that helps to motivate people, again, to overcome the fear and say, this is worth going for. I mentioned Zoom Out, Zoom In. Part of the reason I recommend this strategy is I think Zoom Out, Zoom In has great emotional power in the sense on the one side, the zoom out can help frame a very large, inspiring opportunity out in the future, the zoom Mm -hmm. out. And the zoom inside focuses people on tangible action that can be taken today and that starts to build confidence that that zoom out thing is not just some kind of fantasy. This is actually achievable. Mm -hmm. We're making progress towards it. This is exciting. Mm -hmm. Let's move forward together. And so I think the combination of that inspiring opportunity and the focus on short-term action and impact can be powerful in moving people from fear to hope and excitement. I completely agree. So I'm going to take a slightly different turn here. I think that's, if I'm correct, that you're a fan of Carlota Perez, whom I've interviewed as well for our Nextworks Innovation Talks. And Carlota talks about technological revolutions and paradigm shifts, and she believes that we are currently in a transition period of our current age, which is the age of information technology and telecommunications. So that means that, according to her, we are on the verge of a new golden age. What do you think that this golden age could look like? I am a big fan of Carlotta. Uh, mm-hmm. done a great study throughout history of major technology innovations and the impact they had on economies and societies. The interesting thing to me about the current technology revolution is it's different from the ones that she had talked about in the past, in the sense that what she talked about, you know, you take electricity as an example. There was the discovery of electricity, huge breakthrough in innovation, but then it quickly stabilized. There was modest improvement in performance of electricity, but relatively stable. Mm-hmm. And that gave space then to think about, okay, what's the infrastructure to deliver this technology to economy and society? And again, breakthroughs 
at that level. So in the case of electricity, it was the realization that you could do this much more efficiently in large centralized power generators versus distributed power. Now that they had that infrastructure starting to roll out and stabilizing, businesses could figure out what to do with all this. The interesting thing to me about digital technology is it's not stabilizing. You know, the core technologies are continuing to exponentially improve in terms of performance and price, Mm -hmm. relative to price. Now, today, everybody's talking about cloud computing as the new infrastructure, but that's not the end. Cloud computing, in my view, there's going to be continuing evolution of the infrastructure beyond cloud. And so we need to be that's again why I keep coming back to scalable learning is things are not stabilizing. Mm -hmm. They're going to continue to accelerate in terms of change and force us to really be constantly wanting to understand what are these changes? How can I harness them? How can I create value around them? I don't see an end in sight in terms of the pace of change. Mm -hmm. So you say that's the big difference between this technological revolution and the former is that digital technology is not stabilizing do you have an idea why it is not stabilizing while the others did that's a good question i think that um it's complicated i think part of it has to do with the intrinsic nature of some of the technologies like semiconductors part of it has to do with there's a culture that's grown up in the digital technology world that is constantly striving for that next level of breakthrough in performance and mm-hmm. not willing to just stabilize or hold on to what technology currently does it's an interesting question i don't think enough people have really explored that to understand but certain approaches to the technology started to level off in terms of their price performance improvement, but then they came up with new approaches to organizing the semiconductors, and that led to another wave. And so they're constantly pushing the frontier, and I don't know. Mm -hmm. Could it maybe be because the fuel between brackets of the current revolution is data, and that information moves a lot faster than things that are real, so not virtual? Yes, well, I think that's certainly a key factor. And the amount of data that's being generated, the connectivity that helps us to access data, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just the data is available in small pockets without being able to find it or connect to it. And then the whole analytic tools that can allow us to extract insight and value from the data. All of that is continuing to improve, and that's a key driver of this. By the way, there's a metaphor going on in the technology world of data is the new oil. Mm-hmm. And I challenge that because oil is a diminishing resource. Data is not finite. I view data as the new solar. <laughs> it's infinitely renewable resource, and so, of course, is a different mindset than just mining oil. So talking about technology, I know that Kevin Kelly is famous for saying that technology wants to survive and to grow like organisms do. So this is maybe more kind of a philosophical question, maybe, but in parallel to that, what do you think that organizations want? And could there be a disconnect between what an organization wants and what individual employees want or what the market wants? So in other words, could companies be the wrong organizational model for the age of scalable learning? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure I can qualify what organizations want. I mean, organizations at one level 
are just collections of people. So mm-hmm. the, the ultimate question is, what do people want? And I think, again, it goes to the back to the notion of there is an institutional model of scalable efficiency for organizations. But that's not intrinsic. I mean, you could have organizations without scalable efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. We could have scalable learning instead. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I would say the organizations as they're currently organized and designed around scalable efficiency have a very specific set of needs or wants that are increasingly in conflict with the wants of the people and uh, broader society. I think ultimately for me, the core is what do people want? And my view throughout human history, I'm a big fan of history, we as people have been driven by a desire to achieve more and more of our potential. Mm -hmm. And um, the opportunity to continually have more and more impact by developing our potential, to me, is the foundational want, if you will, of people. And ultimately, we're going to find organizations and institutions that can support that need or want, our belief is scalable learning is really what's required to achieve more of our potential. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that you always put people before technology, but which technology or which technology mix are you most enthusiastic about today? <laughs> wow, do I have to pick? <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you, can, you can name several ones. I'm okay with that. <laughs> No, no, I, I, you know, I think the, um, I'm fascinated with all the technologies, you know, certainly there are interesting things with the Internet of Things, uh, additive manufacturing, 3D printing kinds of technologies. But at the end of the day, my belief is the technologies that are going to have the biggest impact on us are around biosynthesis. Mm-hmm. It's about technologies that can help us to achieve much longer and much more fulfilling lives with wellness, not just living longer, actually living longer and being physically and mentally well, that will allow us to achieve much more of our potential. And those technologies are just beginning to show the impact that can be achieved. Mm-hmm. I agree that that would be a great change, but there's always, as with many other technologies, there's always a dark side to that, of course, because they would maybe have problems with overpopulation and lack of resources and things like that. What do you think about that? Uh, That's a complicated situation. I think that, first of all, people have been talking about overpopulation for centuries, actually. I, I think that the interesting trends, again, if you look at the long arc of history, is the more prosperous we become, the smaller the family unit becomes. You know, we used to have families with 10, 12 children because, you know, many children died in childhood. We were in poverty, so we needed children to help us make a living. There were all kinds of reasons for large families. As we became more prosperous, the size of the family has diminished, so the rate of population growth goes down. And I think that, you know, everybody talks about um, the population as 7 billion mouths to feed. Mm-hmm. I like to focus on it's 7 billion minds to unleash. <laughs> Imagine what we could accomplish if we had 8 billion minds to unleash <laughs> versus 7 billion. It requires a focus on a whole range of things around the notion of impact on the environment and scarce resources, you know, in nature. But I think part of the power of innovation is how we can 
do so much more with so much less resource. And the population continues to grow, but certainly not at the rate that we've had in the past. Mm-hmm. So how do you see the big shifts evolving it, but in society? So will capitalism shift or will democracy shift or, or how do you see that? You know, I think there are going to be lots of changes in all aspects of economy and society. One of the things that I see in, in the political and social sphere is I believe we're actually going back in history and that we're going to see a return to uh, city-states versus, you know, large nations. Mm-hmm. We're going to see increasing decentralization down to major urban areas, having the key political decision-making role. So very different kind of political structure. I think we're going to see much more agency at the community level, people mobilizing in communities to take action together around specific needs. Uh, broadly, we've become pretty passive as citizens and as members of communities. We wait for the government to help us or we wait for somebody else to do it. Increasingly, I think, going to take on this notion that it's up to us to do it. You know, capitalism, I'm not sure I like the term because I'm not sure what it really means. People have all kinds of meanings associated with it. If we're talking about markets as the fundamental economic mechanism, Mm-hmm. I think markets will continue to thrive despite some recent trends towards blocking market activity across national boundaries. I think we're actually going to see more and more market activities globally. But in terms of the market activity itself, I think I see a fundamental shift from what I would describe as transactions, short-term transactions, just buy low, sell high, that's the market in action, to much more of a notion of markets that are driven by long-term trust-based relationships Mm -hmm. because increasingly markets are going to be driven by innovation and learning, not just by buying low and selling high. And that's going to require a very different set of interactions across companies and and participants in the markets. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the educational system should make the big shift so that young people will be prepared to live and work in a world of exponential and even sudden changes, as well as scalable learning. Do you think that companies might become some kind of lifelong learning schools and that university may become obsolete at one point? Or how do you see this? I see educational institutions or institutions, and they've been built on a scalable efficiency model. And actually, I can at least talk about the U.S. public school system because I've actually studied the history of that system. And those institutions were explicitly designed to take children who had a hard time following orders and training them how to follow orders reliably and predictably Mm -hmm. so that they could go into factories and become productive factory workers. That was very explicit. That was the goal. Our entire educational system has been designed around that notion of people need some basic skills like reading and writing. But then the key is to get them to listen to the teacher, memorize what the teacher says, play it back. That educational model, I believe, is fundamentally broken, increasingly disconnected from the needs of our society, which is, you know, to learn faster. And my belief is the key role of educational institutions in the future is to help children find and cultivate a passion. And help them to explore until they find the passion and then to pursue that passion and find a way to actually make a living from that passion. 
that's a very different mission than the traditional educational system. So I have two daughters. My only advice to them when they were growing up was find your passion and don't Mm -hmm. stop until you found it and then figure out how to make a living from it. In a world where learning becomes more and more critical and central, the key is the motivation to learn. What's the motivation to learn? Mm-hmm. And the assumption that most people have today, I think, is, well, we need to learn out of fear because if we don't learn, we're going to lose our jobs. The most effective learning comes from passion. If you're really excited about exploration and finding new things and coming up with new approaches to get more impact, you're going to learn so much more faster than somebody who's just learning because they're going to lose their job without that learning. Mm-hmm. So. It really requires a fundamental rethink of our educational institutions. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that finding our passion is a great note um, to end our conversation on. So thank you so much for joining the Next Works Innovation Talks, John. It was fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I appreciate your interest. Thank you. This was NextWorks Innovation Talks. Thank you so much for joining us and follow us on nextworks.com if you're hungry for more innovation news and events.